welcome to Motopod, the internet radio show all about motorcycle road racing. This is episode number 679. I'm Jim McDowell. With me from the UK is Rich Drouet. Rich, what's going on in the UK tonight? Hi, Jim. Yeah, uh, been getting a lash with rain and wind, uh, unfortunately, at the moment, but that's the time of year. But um, yeah, getting some fairly major withdrawal symptoms already from the lack of racing. And it's been a pretty slow news week as well this week so there isn't a great deal of news to catch up on regrettably although i will just say that on saturday i'm heading up to birmingham not in alabama the the british one uh to the motorcycle live uh event which is the uk's kind of big premier motorbike show all the manufacturers are there but saturday the 11th when i'm going is is the bsb day so there's due to be quite a lot of announcements about riders and teams i believe so Hopefully on the back of that, next time we do a show, which might be a, a week or two down the down the road, but hopefully we'll have a few things to talk about uh, for the British fans and fans elsewhere that like BSB, of course, uh, in terms of who's going where and who's doing what in the British Superbike paddock. That'd be awesome. But there, I wish we had something like that here. We did years ago. We had like a big expo that ran around, and it was manufacturers and you know apparel and all that kind of things, and uh, it came to cleveland so that's roughly like four ish hours away from me and i went up one time with a buddy had a good time it was fun to be there but it wasn't like there was throngs of racing stuff it was more just bikes and you know pretty pretty model girls that want to sell you something who know nothing about the product that they have which irritates me to no end but <laughs> booth babes that's what we call them booth babes. yeah that's okay i mean we're, again i know we've said this before but we're very lucky in the uk obviously that it doesn't take hours and hours and hours of travel oh, yeah. mm-hmm. to get anywhere and birmingham as you know is sort of central-ish in you know it's, it's closer to the south than it is to the north the far north it's it's true but um yeah so we have our national exhibition center there so this is a generally an annual show i'm not sure if it happened last year because of course covid's interrupted everything as we know and unfortunately, we're getting hit with this new Omicron or whatever it's called variant at the moment. So we're all having to mask up again uh, for this show when we go. But uh, yeah, they, they've managed over the years because BSB has become such a big deal uh, in the UK in the last, well, 10 to 15 years, but certainly in the last few years. So they've kind of melded the the roadside in terms of all the manufacturers and the production side of biking to quite a heavy bent towards the the sporting side as well so there's loads of sports bikes to look at there and as i say saturday is very much dedicated to being a, a more of a bsb day so there's lots of riders and team owners and one thing and another so yeah i'm looking forward to that so there'll hopefully be a few things to talk about on the back of that so question for you where was the pub that everybody was snowed in at i saw that on the news over here it was in england and they had some freak snowstorm got 12 inches Obviously, that yeah. was not anywhere near you. Because I was thinking, if Rich, you're one lucky man if you were snowed in at the bar. Yeah, I could have dealt with that. That that wouldn't have been a huge problem from my point of view. Uh, no, that was up in the north of the country. I, I must admit, I haven't seen on news where that was. But yeah, in the south, we tend not to get such a lot of snow. And particularly in the area of the UK where I live, in the southwest, we have a almost a, kind of a, a weird microclimate around here. We get very, very little snow. So it can be, you know, four foot snow drifts. 100 miles to the north of here and and here you look out the window and the sun's shining and uh, yeah it's weird so but but yeah we are getting some fairly fairly bad weather up up in the north at the moment so hopefully that won't affect the uh, the show on saturday shouldn't uh-huh. do let's hope not anyway folks if uh you like the show like the content that rich and i put out and you can help out a little bit if you could throw in some pounds some euros some dollars that would be great 
You can do that by going to our webpage, www.motopodcast.com. It's as little as two U.S. dollars to donate per month. Every little bit helps, keeps this show ad-free, keeps the servers running, and keeps us bringing content to you. So with that, why don't we just, there really is no news, so why don't we just get into why we're here, which is we want to talk about what happened in 2021. So this is the season review show that we've promised. It's just now happening. But uh, we'll just start, let's just start with Moto3, right, Rich? Start it there. Okay, so Moto3. Moto3 was like a Shakespearean play in three parts. To me, that's how I saw it, because we had our hero, Acosta, who burst onto the scene by being on the podium at the first race in Qatar. He wins the second race from the pit lane, and then he runs off four or five more wins in a row after that. Stunning start to the season for him. And you're going, well, he is the presumptive champion. Please here, take this cup, and please graduate and go to Moto2. However, as it is with all, all things Shakespearean, eventually we got to tracks that Acosta wasn't too familiar with, and the kid struggled a little bit. Well, that gave us time to have the rise of the villain, who was one Dennis Foggia. Foggia has been notorious for not being able to get anything going or staying on the podium trot, but he did. He started to string together podiums, he started to string together victories, and sure enough, he started to make this into a title chase. But, as it would work out in the end, Acosta would have his ups and downs, he would get back to home soil in Spain, he would try too hard, would you say, at Aragon, and crash himself out of a lead, or at least a sure podium. To which then, Foggia was able to close the gap even more, and eventually he ate away some 69 or 70 points from the kid over the course of the middle part. But at the end of the year, Acosta got his head back right again. He put his head down, figured out what he was missing on the bike, and with a little help from home soil, he winds up going on to win the championship. And our here and the villain of it all, Foggia, gets knocked out in the uh, second to the penultimate round, I should say, thus guaranteeing that Acosta would win the title which he did so there's a summary of what actually happened during all that what did you think of the season in moto 3 rich moto 3 as it tends to do but this year more than ever before i would suggest really delivered race after race didn't it i mean the second race that you mentioned where you know with the famous pit lane penalty to checkered flag for acosta is a race that will go down as one for the ages really and talk about announcing yourself on the scene he he had done pretty well in the race prior the problem with moto well one of the problems i think in trying to review a season bearing in mind there are three races and i'm ignoring moto e from this conversation uh for these because <laughs> not a massive fan of moto e if i'm honest as we've said many times but there are so many races or so many rounds in the calendar now that to really try and summarize something like moto three is is virtually impossible i mean we could easily spend an hour just talking about moto three which is a, a great compliment to the moto three category because as i say it delivers race in race out uh, and to pick a the best race of the season is, is very difficult but yeah i mean acosta just blew our minds in that first three or four well possibly even five or six rounds then he kind of, as you say, Jimmy, kind of hit that little dip in form. 
maybe he didn't. I mean, I mean, he had set the bar so high that it was kind of impossible to keep on going at that level, I suppose. And as you say, he probably started to hit some tracks that he didn't know so well. Obviously, with with the success that he was having and the, you know, the reputation he was starting to build on the world scene, the pressure comes with that as well. And it was amazing to me how few mistakes throughout the season we saw from him. I mean, really, in terms of pure racing mistakes, I can only really think of Aragon when he took the front and took uh, uh, Artigas out as really the only major mistake that he made all season. Uh, uh, and even when, like at Silverstone and where was the other famous race where he was really struggling and, and he, oh, it was uh, the second Mizano race, I think, wasn't it? I was going to say he Silverstone. Was kind of, Silverstone was definitely one, and I think the, the, the second of the Mazzano races, one of them anyway, and he was kind of mired down in at 1.14th, and Foggia was out front, you know, on this run of rich form that he suddenly found. But but Pedro, as he did race after race in the second half of the season, just managed to pull out a couple of last laps where he just slayed it and, and made a ton of points back because otherwise, you know, it could have been a different outcome in the championship. But as you say, Foggia, for the first time, that I can remember after a, a quiet start to the season managed to shape that reputation of his where he would be stellar at one weekend and then disappear for the next two or three weekends in the second half of the season. He was there week in week out. So yeah, I mean that that's kind of the takeaways for me, but Acosta clearly the, the standout ride. I'm going to be a little bit controversial in a minute when you ask one of the next questions in terms of another rider that i think is worthy of mention but that's that's, oh, that's my fine. kind of yeah i i agree with you um it had it, there were so many good races that happened which is the norm for moto three there was always the races that were scary cover your hands or put your hands over your eyes kind of look through your fingers when we got to barcelona Magello, yeah. uh austria right we were flirting with disaster all season long we knew that we talked about it numerous times that these guys got to stop what they're doing. It's getting dangerous. And we almost had tragedy at Coda. That was one of the major moments to me was the Coda race. The, the incident on that back straightaway, just how lucky Acosta was, how lucky um, they all were and their Antonelli was in there and whatnot it was one of those things and on you as well um it was one of those things where it's just like wow you just don't want that to see that happening and and it did race direction i think did the right thing they definitely stepped in and put down a severe penalty for the actions that had happened it has been coming and it was just going to be somebody who was going to actually get that penalty it just happened to be onto you. It happened to be coded. It happened to be at that point in time. And again, it was the right call. They did the right thing because we've seen way too much of this happening in lower classes and lower forms. And we've, we've beat that dead horse and I don't want to go there, but the, the other thing with Costa and just kind of with him is that he also had that lucky escape at uh, Assen where he, the practice, uh, free practice two or something, and he got hit, um, crashed, hit there, the final chicane, got ran over by other bikes. This is just, you know, lucky there as well. But we saw what we always talk about is the champion's ride. 
we saw Costa do that, what, three, four times where he starts the last lap in 15th. Foggia is in podium position and suddenly you're watching the podium fight because that's the amazing part of the race. And also you just pan, they just pan back at the end and suddenly here's Acosta in fifth and you're going, how did the boy do that? And you say, well, I'm going back looking for onboards and he's just slicing through the field like a man possessed because he's, he knows he has to maintain this. And that's what champions are made of, right? They dig deep when they have to. Um, we also see that he's very much an elite talent as well. Because he could dig deep and could get the best out of a motorcycle that maybe wasn't as perfectly set up as he is. You know, we were talking about mistakes. I won't exactly call this one a mistake, but they started on that. It was Mazzano, second Mazzano. He started on the he started on the softer tire option as opposed to the hard that everybody had. Yes. Or no, or was he on the hard and everybody was? I think on he was the, on the hard. I think yeah, he was I think on everybody. The hard. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. It was the hard. And he chose that one. And we all questioned that. Like, you know, we talked about it. Your title rival is on that other tire. Match what he does at the very least because you keep yourself equal. Or as equal as you can be, right? It's a Honda versus a KTM. But those bikes are very equal to each other. And he didn't go with it. So was it a team issue? Was it an Acadre? Was it Pedro? He just didn't feel comfortable on that tire. Who knows? It was a game, it was a roll of the dice. It paid off. The kid's world champion. Can't wait to see what he does in Moto 2. But um, Foggia really had a great run of form. He he kind of took all the naysayers who've been down on him and told them, nope, I'm good. I can do this and showed that he could. Is he deserving of a Moto 2 ride? Yep. Did he get one? Nope. Did he decide to stay in Moto 3? Yep. Does that make him next year's champion? On paper, it does. Yeah. But guess what? There's going to be some other Spanish kid in the CEV that's just going to burst onto the scene that we don't know about, and it's going to be like the second coming. Yeah. So it was fantastic in all that. I think uh, Mizano is a is a good race just to quickly dwell on as well, because, of course, at this stage with the second Mizano race, was it the second Mizano race? I think it was when we had the sort of Acosta going on the hard tie when everybody else was yeah, on the side. Yeah, it was the second one because the temperature was so much cooler. That, that right time when we came back yeah and of course if you remember Foggia had not had a very good qualifying because if it was it was held the day before in damp conditions so Foggia mm-hmm. was way back on the grid it was sort of really the pressure pot was really starting to boil in terms of the championship for those two Acosta was further up the field took that odd decision let's say or the team did with the tires as you say and of course was faced with Foggia just coming through the pack and and into the lead group and into first place probably by like six or seven as i recall maybe a little bit later but and, and acosta kind of mired down with this perhaps poor choice of tire and at that point his head could have completely gone but that was the race i would refer to a moment ago where in the last lap or two he just pulled it out and i think he in the end he finished 10th or something like that and we said at the time that was kind of a, a champion's recovery because he could have lost a hell of a lot of points in that race uh, if he really let it get to him uh, so, and the, and the other point that you said a minute ago, which I think is absolutely correct, is that the great talents mark themselves out in, in terms of their performance, but also by doing something a bit different to everybody else in terms of the way they're riding the, the equipment that they've got. And we've said numerous times this year that Acosta was clearly doing something with the the way he was managing corners and the front tyre on that KTM, which looked to us distinctly different and did mark him out immediately 
as somebody that was just that bit special as well. But of course, you can't. He's backed it up with everything else. I mean, his toolkit is 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 full. So yeah, n- next year is a mouth-watering prospect. Right. The the other thing too is he not only was he good on the bike, he was just as good off the bike in interviews and being the person that you want him to be, the pe- person you want to represent you, your brand, your sponsors. He's perfect at it. The kid was always smiling. He was never down. He he would play to the camera like you kind of want. And he's, you know, if anything, he's got, he almost has that like uh, Mark Marquez grin, Cheshire grin thing that he does that, you know, you just, he just boils with confidence and he can back it up. Well, yeah, and if there was any criticism leveled at him through the year, it was perhaps that there was just a bit, perhaps a bit too much cockiness. And of course, we saw mm. him starting to get into the whole mind games uh, business at the second Portimao race with that kind of bump into Foggia on the uh, morning warm up at the end, just, you know, nibbling away, getting into the mines. So, yeah, th- th- that kid has got it sorted. And, and I will never forget, you know, after that horrific crash at, at Cota. 15 minutes later, he's back in the pits having interviews, smiling and joking as if nothing's ever happened. I mean, most of us would have been lying down for eight hours, you know, recovering from shock. What's the what's the saying? To be old and wise, first you must be young and stupid? Well, yeah. Lacking in imagination, which is obviously a criticism that's leveled at the Moto3 pack uh, often. Uh, come on, Rich. When we were 17 years old, I don't think we thought we could die. No. No, this I is mean, true. I, this is true. It, 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 so I mean, there's there's always that uh, you you don't you have a different outlook in life when you become how how do I want to say this? You, your your outlook in life changes first when you decide to get married, and you now have someone that you take care of, and then it changes it it whole spins another whole hundred eighty degrees when you have children, because they're your world and. It, it's everything's completely different at that point. And you and, can't afford to get injured when you're, when you've got children because they've correct. already spent all your, all your money. So. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. That is true. Um, I think we got enough there. So what was the biggest shock of the season for you in Moto3? Uh, I would say the, the, counterintuitively, the biggest shock for me was that the FIM and or I guess the FIM actually for once did the right thing and for them quite quickly took action in terms of addressing this whole issue that came up well that was magnified by what happened at, at, at Cota but which had been building up all year because let we, we mustn't forget in all of this to you know make a mention for the fact that we lost Jason de Pasquier at Mugello mm-hmm. um, and we had seen lots of crazy behavior going on I mean one person that for me, definitely deserved to have a penalty at some point during the year was Jeremy Alcoba because he was guilty of weaving as much as anybody else all year long and was obviously involved. People said the innocent party, but and I guess he sort of was in terms of the precise details of, of what happened at Cota, but he, he was weaving around all, all year long. And if you remember, it was Alcoba that was playing all the silly games at Barcelona back in the pack up with two or three laps to go. And I mean, that, that could have been, you know, that could have been really terrible as well had that had that kind of run out a different way so yeah the shock for me in a way was that having been quite sort of intransigent over this whole issue for quite some years that the the governing body did at last decide to take some decisive action over this now there is a school of thought that says well if you limit or if you increase the age limit 
but they're not still getting all the experience on the world stage and you just have crazy 18 year olds not crazy 16 year olds and there is obviously some merit to that but I think your point Jim is well made which is that each year you get a bit older and wiser that you learn a few more things and so hopefully that will help to you know bear itself out but this is a dangerous sport as we've said many many times but it was a pleasant surprise I suppose for me that they decided to take some some positive steps to try and do something towards and of course they announced some other technological things in terms of how the flags will appear perhaps on the bikes on the dashboards and so on and and, and even more focus on the safety gear and so on so they're, they're taking steps which i think is is for the betterment and the long-term survival of the sport so so that was a pleasant surprise i think the shocker for me you've already mentioned it was the fact that foggia didn't get a ride in moto 2 because okay. there was nowhere, nowhere for him to go, really, by by the time you know the music stopped, all the chairs were, were occupied at that point, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe he wants to hang around and have another go at getting the championship. Uh, but but it does seem slightly odd on his form that he didn't get the move up when others did who were arguably less deserving True. On, perform- on performance. So for me, uh, I have the biggest shock and then I've got sort of like an honorable mention. So the biggest shock for me this season is still Acosta winning from pit lane. Yes, I know it sounds like an Acosta fanboy here, but come on. He did something that nobody's done. Yes, that track helps you with the long straightaway of the draft that you could pull yourself up there. But it's one thing to get yourself to the front of the pack. It was a completely another thing to have sliced through the pack on worn tires and simply made everybody who was ahead of you look stupid and win the race. Yep. <laughs> that To me, I still go back and go, damn, that kid did that, which is impressive. The other one I'll go with is sort of in the same vein where you were, but just a slightly different, was the shock of uh, Ethan Guevara winning from the pit lane in Coda because it was just, that race was that bizarre in yeah. the way the rule book worked to help him win that race. And he was, we talk about the roller coaster of emotions. Well, here was a kid who was upset beyond belief, had pretty much thrown the prams out of the, toys out of the pram. And was complaining, you know, because the bike had broken. Not his fault. That nope. track was bumpy, nasty, rough. It destroyed almost everything that you could, that anybody could throw at it. And yet, just by the luck of what happened and how the rules are written, he winds up winning the race. So that was kind of a shock. Because when he stopped, you're thinking, well, who, who, who won the race? And you find that that's actually him. So that's what yeah. I'm going with. That, that was a crazy race. It was totally crazy. So who rode the best? Well, obviously, you can't look past Acosta. I think he's the champion. So on, on that point alone, yeah. you'd have to say that he rode the best. Foggia had a, had a great year as well. This is where I was going to get a bit controversial because I, I actually would like to put my hand up and say I think Dennis Onchu had a great year in terms of riding consistently fast at the front. Now, yes, this, this guy needs to calm it the hell down and, and big style. And as I said in one of the uh, a show or two ago, he really needs somebody like a, an Akiyo in his corner just to help to harness that raw talent and that raw speed that he's got and, and mate it to a, a psychological approach, which is just a, a bit more ruthless, but in a in a in a safe way, let, let's say. But you can't deny the fact that he was up the front at most of the races and Dyson away with with the best of them. And again, if he can get his head sorted out that next year, then again, you'd have to say that he could be a, a championship contender. 
Agreed. So for me, for who rode the best, I am not going to pick Acosta. I'm going to take Foggia because I think there was more expectations on Foggia than there was on um, Acosta. Acosta was the new kid on the block, and whatever he did was going to be whatever he did. Foggia had been there before and was one of the people who was going to be listed as a favorite for the title, and he rode up to those expectations. Um, he did have a slow start to the season, and let's be real, if he would have not had a slow start to the season, and Acosta did not have the season, the beginning of the season that he had, he was a champion. But for someone who came from so far behind, to cut it down to where we were having to do maths at the final couple of rounds to see who was going to be world champion, uh, considering that most of us would have probably given the championship to Acosta after Jerez <laughs> early in the season. Yeah. I deserve it. He deserves my nod for, for that. So then who, uh, so instead of who wrote this, who was the best team? I'll ask you that for Moto3. Ooh, yeah, that's a tricky one. I mean, most of the teams, when you look at them, I had one rider perform really well and then the other rider perhaps mm-hmm. not, not so much. So, I mean, if you look at Fogia, uh, sorry, Fogia uh, and Artigas, he, who again was a rookie, and did improve as the season went on, and obviously, you know, won the last race. So, fair play to. Although, of course, he'd been unceremoniously dumped out of the team at that point, so that was a little bit of payback for him. Uh, I mean, Massia had a, a pretty poor year, given the team that he was in, and given what his teammate did. So, oh, I'm a bit stuck on that one. To yeah, be it's a tough one. It it's a tough. tough one. It's a tough one. I'm not so sure. If- um, if we look at it from from a rider perspective of who underperformed or or who was the best team, I guess is what I should say. Um, it's hard to argue against Leopard Honda. I mean, they have the fastest Hondas without bar none, trickery yep. or whatever. Beside, yep. they, they you know those bikes are super fast the whole way around. Um, it's kind of a tie though. You could say Io had such a great team too. Um, the only reason I kind of don't pick IO is the fact that like they have the same machines and equipment that Tech 3 has, and Tech 3 really didn't have the season that they want it to be, so, which leads us to the idea of who underperformed. And I'll, I'll go first. Yep. Nominations there, Sasaki and Suzuki. Like, what happened to those boys? Literally, like they fell off of the whole game, and Sasaki had a terrible season, in which, bring, which brought Tech 3 down. Because Anchi was leading that charge in that respect. So who do you think underperformed per the season? There's going to be a bit of a pattern with this, but oh, that's I, I, okay. thought, I thought Patronus had a, an absolutely abysmal year. Yeah, I would Look, say for a team, yes. They, I don't know, that one just went... It looked so good at the beginning and then just simply just went nowhere. Is it... Be, not to steal thunder from you, Rich, but... Is it because they knew the team was folding? There wasn't there wasn't money. Was it all of those things in there somewhere combined? I don't know, but yeah, I mean, for a team that should have been at the front, they kind of were nowhere. I mean, again, they they started off reasonably strong. Binder was pretty good in in Qatar. Mm-hmm. McPhee, in fairness, and okay, I would say this as a Brit was a was quite unlucky at various points, but but again was also guilty of throwing it up the road on his own a good few times as well. And just overall, you, you would have had at the beginning of the season, if, if somebody had said to you, which two or three teams are in the championship fight in terms of all of the riders, you would have said, as you've said, Leopard, the IO team and the Patronus team. And Patronus were nowhere 
at mm. the end of the in the final reckoning they were they were just nowhere so it was a pretty abysmal end and obviously uh, i can't remember precisely at which point of the team we learned that patronus was pulling the money uh, but that was quite late into the season i think so i don't think that could really be used as a a major excuse for underperformance so yeah it just never worked out for them really for one reason or another i mean i I think there's a fair argument to say that binder was also physically probably just too big for a moto three bike yeah there are certain tracks probably that he could get away with it qatar being perhaps one good example of that but but overall yeah very poor Hmm. all right so i that wraps it up for me for moto three anything else that you've got to want to add that uh, you may have rich no I, i i mean i'm looking forward over the Although uh, whether I'll be allowed to do it is another matter, but I'm really looking forward to going back and rewatching some of the Moto Three races uh, during the off season. Well, yeah, we were in the off season, but what off season? Come on! Once we get into the new year, <laughs> I'm looking forward to going back and watching some of those races uh, because, uh, yeah, I mean, as we said at, at the top of the show, Moto Three just consistently delivers race in, race out. Yes, it does. So a tip of the hat, tip of the Moto Pod hat to Pedro Acosta for being the first rookie to win the Moto Three or the lightweight class in 31 years yeah so that was pretty amazing let's move to moto 2 now this was the battle of the teammates it was a remy gardner versus raul fernandez show it was that way the entire season there were many pivotal moments in this championship that we thought it could go one way or the other way sock centering i thought was a defining moment where remy had the lead and there was nothing Raul could do about it. In fact, he was trying so hard, he tossed the front away and crashed. Then we had the big deal where Raul breaks his hand on a, I think he did it on a, on a mountain bike or a push bike yeah. just before going to Aragon. Well, that's going to be it. It's his right hand. It's his right fingers. Well, you have to grip and break with those. Now, you know, okay, he, you know, well, can he do anything with it? Yeah, probably he'll get a podium at Aragon. Nope, he won. In a convincing fashion, then won three more races after that with a broken hand to bring it all back in. The ebbs and flows of this championship were amazing. It was it was one guy after the other, up, down, up, down the whole time. Then you get to the point of where Remy was leading, but Raul had sort of brought the deficit down to where this was going to be the one championship. Guaranteed it was going to go to the final race in Valencia. And... Did Remy get luck out by having that shortened race in Valencia? Did that red flag help Remy? Was it one of those things? Was that his? It was, it, or was it always going to be Raul and Remy was always going to be able to do what he needed to do to be world champion? But what it really was for this season, for me, for Moto2, was it was literally a case of who made the least mistakes. And I think Remy rode smarter not harder is Raul a talent very much so is he more talented than Remy maybe but sometimes grit and determination will take you a whole lot farther than natural talent will take you so that's how I saw the Moto T season your thoughts on it Rich very much along the same lines Jim to be honest I I feel a bit sorry for Moto 2 in a way because more often than not with one, with a few exceptions during the year in terms of scheduling, it, it, it follows the Moto3 race. So that, that's a pretty difficult act to follow normally, isn't it? And the, the nature of the Moto2 class, it, it tends to be a bit more kind of chess, chess gamey, doesn't it? It's, it's, it's a kind of a war of attrition in a way. 
and as you've said consistency when you look at the championship over the years consistency has tended to be the the key thing that you need to to win the title and clearly that's what Remy delivered this year was was you know grinding consistency really whereas Raul I mean just looking a little while ago over the course of the 18 rounds uh was it 18 rounds I think it was yeah 18 um, this year uh or 19. 13, 13 wins to the IO Moto2 team and now, was, there, there's there's your team of the year right there I mean they were three, three quarters of the races they won you, you know and that's that's insane. staggering in a, in a control formula uh, series like that where there is no distinct technical advantage uh, you know between machines uh, other than setup uh, and who's riding them so uh, i mean to have won 75 percent of the races you, you can't argue with that now it's incredible raul took eight and remy took five but as you've said it was really just a case of raul naturally more talented yes i think you could easily argue that one but as you say he, he was a sort of win it or bin it merchant this year which is not a criticism because given that it, it was his first year in the class to, to have won any races was, was staggering really. Mm. And to done it in the fashion that he did it was, was, was equally amazing. So as a rookie, as a rookie. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he's yeah. a rookie. It's, it's almost as amazing as Pedro Acosta getting on a Moto three bike and basically decimating the field. Pretty much. That's what happened with Raul Fernandez. It just so happened. He had somebody who was riding a whole hell of a lot more consistently <coughs> Fadia, because if he'd had it would be it may not be different but it would have taken it all the way to the end it would have been extremely tight i mean how many years have we kind of glanced over or ignored moto 2 because it was like the nothing season like nothing happened nothing would happen in those races is like well this guy got out front one yeah well okay this weekend it's this guy and well, does anybody want to win this damn championship? Yeah. Who, well, here came two kids. I use kids loosely here because they're younger than me. So everyone younger than me is a kid. Uh, they came in and said, no, I want to win this championship. I am going to win it. And I'm going to do it in the best way possible. And they produced some great races. It, it, it wasn't Titanic struggles. It wasn't schwantz versus rainy that we saw in in moto in grand prix racing in 500s back in the day it wasn't freddie spencer kenny roberts eras type stuff but for those two to go at it the way that they did hammer tongue and they raced clean the whole way yeah they they never did put a they didn't really get involved in dust ups altercations i mean that whole team situation could have went well south real fast between the two of them it never did. It seemed like they were friendly to each other, as friendly as I think teammates can be without being over the line where one is sort of, not the right word, but submissive to the other one, yeah. if you will, but, but in there. But uh, again, it was, it was fascinating racing. And that was the thing that was there. Was, because there was also the contrast of styles. I, Remy is, was very much ride the bike sideways, speedway style, dirt track style, however you won't prefer to think of it. Where Fernandez is like, it's more in line. And most people don't ride a Moto2 bike in line. They ride a Moto2 bike sideways. But he made it work in a straight line successfully. So yeah. it was contrasting styles, contrasting lines. You know, It was the classic big arky sweeping stuff from Fernandez. It was point and squirt from Remy. It was just fun to watch. 
So I think I think it was fun to watch the races. It was a captivating season, albeit really just played out by two people. I mean, let's let's not forget. And, and again, when I looked at the the Moto Two stats or, or the race results earlier on, I thought, wow, Sam Lowe's won the first three races. If you remember, now that had completely passed me by as as a recollection. And uh, after three races, you were thinking, bloody hell, this guy's going to win the championship at a canter. And then suddenly, here come the the, the IO That's boys right. get into their stride. And uh, Bezeki won one race and. Did Antonio won one one race? Other than Lowe's winning the first three and possibly one other, but I think he only won three. I think it was three, yeah. It was, you know, it was just uh, um, Gardner and, and Fernandez the whole way. So yeah, I mean, you just got to look at the race results and the stats and and yeah, give it due credit. So I'll say this about Triumph: I think they've made great strides in the class. I love the sound of that motor. It sounds yes. amazing when it's being wound out on the track. So compared, compared to the old 600 Honda yeah. engines, which were... they're all cool, but there's something different about that triple. It's just, it's got a unique sound. It's more guttural. You yes. feel it. It's kind of nice. Yeah. But I, there was that moment where I still got to the point where I had to go get on my soapbox and say, these things need an electric starter because Remy fell at Coda, simple, small crash. Was he trying too hard? Yep. Was it because of guess who? Fernandez was out front, right? And he couldn't restart the bike, not even pushing it a few times. It's just, it's difficult, right? And so I'm all about, you know, I don't want a championship to be decided by that kind of a mistake where I have a small crash where I could remount and get going again and salvage some points versus having a starter where I could make it go and get back in it. So you got some. You have an opinion on this, Rich. I can tell. Well, no, no, no. I have a question. In actual fact, oh, I mean, sure. I'm just wondering from your point of view, what is the reason why they don't run starter motors on these on these things? Because in a way, when a, if you have a little kind of tip off, let, let's pick the coat of one with Remy Gardner, which clearly didn't damage the bike in any significant way, it, it robs us viewers or spectators, if you're lucky enough to be at the track, to watch a guy get back on and try and make his way back through the field. Right. It's the, it's the, it's what happens after that crash. Oh, Hey, this guy gets it back up and he goes from 20th to eighth. Well, that's fun to watch. Exactly. Especially if so, somebody's just running away at the front, you know, you, yeah. now you get something else to focus on. Seems, I don't know why they're not there to be honest with you. Um, there's no te- obvious technical reason for it then. No. I mean, starter motors are light enough, small enough that you could easily put one on the bike. There has to be, uh, I think there has to be a battery somewhere in the bike because you've got the fuel injection, which is electric, with the computers to make it work. Um, I guess it could be a manual fuel injection on accelerator pump. I'm not sure which way it is, but I'm assuming, given all the other electric gizmos that are there as far as the stuff for the small amount of traction control that they have to play with, things like that, there's got to be a small battery at the very least. So, because it, But it's a horsepower loss because if you're having to put the energy back into the battery to keep the starter to be able to run that's horsepower you're robbing from the engine you could run a much smaller alternator so you'd have less mass on the flywheel you know there's those little things that are in there but it's a spec class everybody's got to have one like yeah. i understand not having one in moto gp fine i understand not having one in moto 3 got it fine you have a spec engine class it isn't going to matter <laughs> Yeah, it's going to weigh the same. Like it, it, it isn't like like the IO starter motor is going to be lighter than the other, you know, speed or not speed ups, but 
Um, well, anybody else. VDS, yeah. Mark VDS's team. There it is. Yeah, yeah. That's what I was trying yeah. to come up with. So, yeah, I don't really know. But it did, it did give me that chance to get back on the soapbox for that one again. Uh, let's see. Uh, let's talk about uh, the – unless you've got something else to add just as far as an in-general kind of a thing about the season. Um, we'll go on no, to like what – No, I mean it was just a – as we, I think we've said, it was a all bit a two-horse race once the season really got going. But it was still a captivating race, all bit. There weren't that many races that really sort of lingered long in the memory. Uh, there are one or two, and there's one I'm going to mention in a minute. Uh, okay. But yeah, uh, yeah. On to the next point, I think. All right. So, what was the biggest shock of the season? Well, I think, as I've already said, I think it was just the utter dominance of the IO team, really, compared with everybody else. Given that we're in a spec class, and you know, in mm-hmm. theory, everybody should it, sh- it should be closer than that. Mm-hmm. I, and it just I, wasn't. I, yeah, I'm going to I'm going to give I'm going to go along with that one. Uh, the other. One I'll give an honorable mention to is that Ayagura rode so good on a Moto2 bike to the point if it wasn't for Fernandez and Gardner doing what they did and Raul being a rookie that you would have you wouldn't have believed you would have said hey that was really good for Agura because he is a rookie to the class uh, it was just a lot of the Japanese don't seem to do well in that middle class per se they're they're really good on the little bikes some of them are good on the bigger bikes, but the in, be, in between, I, I think Dejiro Kato would be maybe the difference. I think he had a 250 title. And there yes. have been other 250 Japanese champions. Please don't <laughs> don't send the hate mail. It's just, it was it was impressive because for a long time, we haven't had anybody, real, any Japanese really in that middleweight class that have been that good. Sure, there's got to be someone I'm forgetting somewhere. But I did think it was it was interesting that, you know, it was kind of shocking just the fact that we didn't talk about Ayagura being a rookie and being as good as he was because there was this other rookie. So Yeah, uh, honorable one? mention for Tetsuya Harada. He would have been one of the yeah, other middle class. Uh, riders did, did pretty well. Tommy Zawa was really good on a on a middleweight yeah. bike. So I guess I guess it's not true that there aren't there aren't good Japanese. I guess I should say it properly and say it was surprising that we didn't talk about him in the context of this season being a rookie on that bike. So yeah, I, I, I think and he's Jap- rather diminutive in size too. I mean, yeah, he does. Well, I was going to say yeah, that so. is possibly one thing that perhaps counts against Japanese riders a little bit is their kind of stereotypical diminutive stature. Uh, but, at, but at the end of the day, if, if Danny Pedroza can ride a MotoGP bike, then just about anybody can, yeah, uh, that's true. you know, in terms of stature. Um, I mean, in terms of Ayagira, although he was, unfortunately for him, very o- overshadowed by the performance of Raul Fernandez, nevertheless, Honda must be licking their lips at the thought of him mm-hmm. replacing uh, Nakagami, because I can't see Nakagami being in MotoGP much beyond 2022, unless he has an absolutely mm-hmm. stellar year next year. Yeah, I, I I see a guru going to that to that LCR Honda in Nakagami spot. I yeah, I agree there. So who rode the best? I'm going to come down on the side of of Remy Gardner just just based on the fact of his his speed and consistency, which is what it takes to win a championship. Okay, I'll um, differ. I'll differ and go with Fernandez. Oh yeah, okay. But just just because of the fact that I think. He rode and won races with a broken hand, which takes a lot to do. Um, he won more races than Remy Remy did, which and he was so well talented that he tried to buy his way out of his KTM contract to show up on a Yamaha. So I think from the 
perspective of if I'm in the paddock, more people wanted Adrian Fernandez's signature on a contract than people who have wanted a Remy Gardner's signature on a contract. Please do not misunderstand. Remy is going to go good on that KTM RC16. Him and that bike are kind of matched to each other, so it's yeah. going to be fascinating. Question is: Is would is Raul Fernandez going to be matched to that bike as well as Remy? Probably not. <laughs> Remains to be seen. Like you would think that it wouldn't work because Fernandez likes to ride wheels in line, kind of a thing. I don't think that the V4 KTM likes to really ride wheels in line. Although Oliveira does tend to ride that way more than Binder. True. So we don't know what's going to happen, but I, I'm, those are my reasons for that. I think there's a, you know, there's a cigarette paper between Gardner oh, and Fernandez this year yeah, in terms of who totally. was the best. I, I kind of just, just for me personally, I just shade it a little bit in Gardner's direction for two reasons, really. Firstly, that there is a sort of slightly unpleasant whiff hanging around Fernandez in terms of his behaviour in, mm. in in the pit box, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and it will be interesting to see how that develops. You know, in the big class where you know the ego gets a bit bigger as well as the bike. <laughs> so that one <laughs> true, will, very true will will play out. And the other thing, though, more more really to the point with regards to Gardner for me, is that he's toiled away for some years in, in that class, quite often on not not the best team or machinery uh, it, but but not to be insulting to the teams he's ridden for in the past but having got his shot in that team he absolutely made the most of it yep and i think did. you know it, uh, and there was a lot of pressure on him to to deliver in with that background and context to him being in the io team this year so and he, and he completely delivered on it yeah so um honorable mention for biggest shock of the season for me cam bobier on the on the american racers bike when we got back, when we we knew Cam, if you knew Cam and you knew what he did here in America, you knew he was a very talented lad. He made the decision to get into Moto2, which he did. Got there, got on the American racing team. At Coda, he looked brilliant on the bike. And I thought, well, is that a one-off? Is that, you know, where are we at here? But he did when he got back to tracks that he had seen before, Puerto Mayo, Valencia, he rode well, rode in that top six for the rest of the year, which bodes well for him going on next year. And we get Sean Dillon Kelly, who is the super sport champion from Moto America, going to join him on that team. So two Yanks in Moto 2. So I thought that was kind of a shock that, that Cam came to grips with the class, came to grips with everything, and got there at the end, which was, from an American standpoint, I'm happy to see that because I'm still wanting to hear the American anthem played on the top of a podium. Yeah, and, and we need some fast Americans at the front in, in these classes. I mean, the yep. championship absolutely needs that. Yes, so hopefully we will with that American talent comp. So uh, you, have to counter that. <laughs> you have to counter that nice shot with the rather distressing demise of, of Joe Roberts over the course of the season. Oh, wait a minute, you're going to my underperformed part of the question. Sorry, sorry, I'm jumping forward. <laughs> so so let's, just go to the under, let's just go to that one. Who underperformed? Joe Roberts. Uh, yeah, I, the kids started out well, the first, we had that first Port of Mayo race, he looked good, things were going good, and then the wheels fell off the wagon, literally, I think. Do you know why he left the American racing team? And was it a mistake to have done so? Hmm, I, if, if, if I knew, I don't remember why he left, 
Um, I thought it was a good idea to go to a Tau Trans personally because that was the bike that Bezeki had been on to win. Bastianini. No, not Bastianini. Jeez, oh, Pete's guys. Sorry about that one. Bast Thank you, Rich. Bastianini had won the title on that bike. I thought, oh, here we go. Here's a here's a guy that can get on that bike. We know that he's really fast. He just needs that 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 team around him that's got this that little bit more, whether it's more experience, uh, better setup, better knowledge, uh, you know, b better resources, whatever it is, whatever that is. I, I felt like a Taltrans had it. It was a proven to me. It was a proven team. American Racers, fantastic team too. Probably I I don't know one from the other, but looking at it from the outside. You had to feel that you had a better chance of winning a title or being at the front consistently with that team. So I thought it was a good move. It just it did not pan out at all. I mean, he had links to Aprilia to ride on the Aprilia, which yeah. that was all part of that was all according to John Hopkins, I read somewhere, I can't remember where, or he that that was all based on Joe going there. It was also based on Aprilia doing a talent comp in America and they were close to having that all worked out, but it didn't work. But now we have that, uh, you know, so yeah, I don't know. I mean, if you know something different that I know, no, I'm, I've, I mean, I don't think it was a bad move. I thought it was a, the right move at the right time, but you got to wonder if he would have stayed there. Cause one of the things I wondered when he moved was, is, is Hopkins going to stay with him and going to keep rider coaching, which I think he did, or there was some, there, but obviously, you know, Hopkins was doing a lot more with the American riders in the yeah. American racing team, not the American riders, but with Cam Bobier and, and, and I can't think of who came, uh, Ramirez in, in that yes. team. And, uh, you know, Ramirez kind of came on late in the season, which to your point is, well, why did Roberts leave? <laughs> right. Cause that team started to come. It's on the come. I think they're, they're getting there. So it'd be interesting to see what happens next year, but I think it, but it's all new. Well, not all new. I guess Cam is still there, but you have, Ramirez has left. He's gone to the IO team, and you bring in Sean Dillon Kelly. So yeah, I, yeah interesting there. I mean, no, no, nothing against Joe Roberts from my point of view. I think he's a f fantastic rider, and it, I've been a little bit sad really to see the struggles that he's had this year. But, uh, I mean, your point is entirely well made on paper. That was the bike to go to. So, I mean, I, I guess you can understand why he made the jump, but yeah, just always sort of had that feeling and i don't really know what he's done particularly did he come from moto america previously or did he uh, no he he is he has a british father and an american mother and they lived in california for a long time and i know he used to spend time at kenny roberts ranch when he still had the ranch and whatnot and he was deemed like the up-and-comer up-and-coming guy he may have had some minor class Moto two, um, Moto America classes, but I, I don't remember that. And then he was, you know, next thing you know, he was back in Europe, and he suddenly just sort of, I think he kind of was doing more of the CEV, right, and was taking that route because of his his father being being a British national, whatnot. Okay, so I yeah. think he kind of went that way. If I'm, yeah, I'm pretty, or is it Hopkins' is British dad, and his dad was Roberts's dad is. I, I don't, I'm not, a British, I know there's a British connection there. There's yeah, a British definitely. connection somewhere. I th I'm, yeah, I'm pretty yeah. sure of. Yeah. So yeah, not too I, I certainly 100%. remember when Roberts announced that he was leaving uh, the American races. I was, I was really surprised because given how underrepresented in the paddock, the, you know, the Americans are, you felt that that was the kind of uh, a very tight family 
unit plus Hopkins looking over the over the top of it. And I don't know. Obviously, we don't know personally these riders, but Roberts kind of comes across a little bit as a, quite a delicate sort of character in in some respects. Yeah, there's not. Not, not, to yeah, say, yeah. not to say he can't ride with a broken wrist or anything. I'm not not saying that, but I think he's a, again he's a bit of a heady sort of rider who needs to be in the right sort of. Um, you know who he reminds head me of. He reminds me of Lorenzo when Lorenzo first came into MotoGP. If it was right, you couldn't beat him. But when it was wrong, it was way wrong. Way wrong. And yeah, like, eventually, like twenty foot, like 20 foot in the air wrong, <laughs> and two broken ankle wrong. Yeah. So again, Lorenzo figured it out. You figured Joe would have figured it out. I thought he was figuring it out, but apparently, I'm wrong in that one. So, but uh, for underperformed, I know you're gonna hate me for this one, Rich. Sam Lowe. After a bright start, yeah. Yep. Just he just started high-siding himself to the moon, and it just fell apart. Yeah. And that's the that's where I go along with the you know who underperformed as a team. Mark VDS tops my list there because you have the resources and the power, and you could not figure out how to get Sam happy on that motorcycle. I know that Sam made statements mid part, maybe three-quarter distance that. You know, it was the tires. It was the Dunlop tires. They were, those Dunlops are riding this year were modeled on world endurance tires. So they were very hard tires. It was a very hard front. And, and that was like, it, it was the, um, the catch 22 situation that all motorcycle racers find. Hey, guess what? This is a hard tire. Well, yeah, if I ride slow, it doesn't work with the crap. Yeah. You got to ride really hard and trust the front and then it will start working for you. So I know Sam said he made a lot of effort into trying to put that forward and it did get better at the end of the year, but they were so far into the weeds for so long. It was just completely disappointing. What was so curious was to have handsomely won the first three races in the way that he did. And then, Mm -hmm. you know, the wheels or the tires perhaps more more pertinently sort of came (laughs) off uh, metaphorically speaking. So, yeah, I mean, and we said during our kind of after race reviews at several points during the season that during the motor two race, you'd hear the, the scraping of gravel, and your your immediate thought was, oh no, Lowe's is down, and then pan to camera, Lowe's is in the gravel. So I'm um, again, hopefully, he can you know write that next year. But he does have a bit of a reputation for just falling off a bit too often, really, to really mount a serious title challenge. I mean, I know he was close the previous year, but of course he he fell off and broke his wrist, if you remember. Right. And that I mean, kind of did him. That really did it in. I mean, he, I think yeah. he would have been world champion in that season if he hadn't have done that i mean yeah it's yeah it was um, it was it was bad year for sam but he's back yeah. again so and i mean, I, mean Bezzecki, I know he's moving up to moto gp and he probably knew all along that he was moving up to moto gp for 2022 but again a pretty under par season from him but i, I have to say just to continue my uh consistency and uh the, the sort of uh, what I hinted at earlier on my underperforming team of the season was in motor two was Patronus. There's a theme, keeping... there's a theme going there for you. Yeah, I see. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, I thought Dixon who really kind of disappointed in the sense that he had had such a good year the previous year up until the point where he broke his wrist as well. And, and to be fair to Jake Dixon, that was almost a career ending injury. And I still don't think it's, it's completely, that was he, a brutal. That was brutal. There was pins and everything in there to put that one back together. Hideous, so. hideous injury. So he he's done well to be back riding again, uh, and one would hope in a, in a new team, new environment next year that you know he'll get back on track and start showing the form that he'd shown 
you know, during the 2020 season, but overall a disappointing year for him. And well, what can you say about Xavi Vieja? I mean, he spent mm. more time lying down than he did standing up. I think Xavi on a superbike is going to be a lot better. I'm interested to I see. I just do. I'm interested really. to see it. I think it's going to do him. I think he needs to change the scenery. Like, I think he's some, one of those people where, like, if you change the scenery and you get into a paddock that's going to be a little more friendly, a little more open, a little, you know, not quite, I don't want to say cutthroat, but you got to believe that MotoGP is way more cutthroat than Less, what, yeah. what yeah. MotoGP, what, yeah. what well, World Superbike is. Everybody in the paddock, in the World Superbike paddock, says, comparatively speaking it is a it's a far less vicious place to ply your trade mm-hmm. so I, th- I think that's right i mean the, the one great thing in, in Vierge's um favor is that he's riding for one of the richest motorcycle manufacturers in the world so they've got deep uh pockets for the parts bin that's going to be needed oh. certainly in the third. <laughs> ain't that the truth <laughs> so oh. i wish i wish him well and i you know it's high time honda did good things in in world superbike and so maybe Lequona and, and Vieja are the guys to sort of start to deliver on the on the promise that they've kind of sporadically shown over the last few years. But if they're going to beat Razgatioglu on the Yamaha and Ray on the Kawasaki, they're going to have to go some. But let's see. I'm looking forward to watching that and seeing how that one pans out as well. I agree with you. Well, anything else for Moto2? 100% win rate for Calex, which is... You know, perhaps it's a, becoming a true one spec, yeah, class. Uh, which uh, I'm not happy about that, but uh, you know, it is, it is I, what it is. What it is. Yeah, so. I don't like the saying, but it, but it is what it is. Unfortunately, and unless you know, speed up and uh, NTS a, manuf- a frame manufacturer. I'm never. Yeah, quite sure. but there's only like yeah, there's only like one NTS, and then the Boss yeah. Square, which is the old speed up. Now, yeah, going back to the Joe Roberts thing and him leaving. They were on a KTM chassis. American Racing was on a KTM chassis, and I think he thought if he could get to the Kalex, maybe that. Because just I just remembered that as I you said, the one hundred percent win rate. So, I, like you, I'm going to be sort of waving a a, a flag for the American races next year because I'm super interested to see what Cam Bobier can do. You know, Me with too. another year under his belt. But I'm I'm intrigued by this Sean Dylan Kelly character who comes with again with great pedigree doesn't he yeah he does yeah he's as indeed bobier did and you kind of again just going back to the way that that team appears to be set up and from what i've seen of cam bobier anyway the sort of character that he is i'm sure that those two are going to work very well together and that cam will help uh, his new teammate quite a bit so i'm really quite intrigued and excited to, to see what that team can pull out next year i agree it's it, it's one thing to go over to europe by yourself and try to adapt and be in the, with the team. But it's a whole nother thing if you go over with, and you're there with another American who has been there before. Um, for me, we travel, we have a couple plants in Europe for our work. We have one in Belgium, we got one in, in Ireland, Northern Ireland. And the first time that I went over there, you went with, I went with a bunch of people who had been there before, who knew the lay of the town and everything. It's so much easier to adapt then because yeah. they kind of know where the restaurants are. They know where exactly the plant is you're not trying to figure out how to drive somewhere else especially if you're if you're like an american and you drive on the on the left hand side of the car and you show up in ireland you got to drive on the right hand side of the car which is fun by the way i do i do i do enjoy that challenge but it's called the right side of the car for a reason jim it's because it's yeah the right, yeah it's the right, right side whatever <laughs> whatever 
Yeah, remember we remember you guys have a you are the you have a number two in that you're uh, you're in your digit of your code because you're the second people to get the phone. So we get the one right for country code. You get the two because you're the second people. And oh, by the way, we English is the national language of air of airplanes and air traffic control because we built the first plane. So <laughs> all right. Yeah. Oh, that's just us being having some fun, guys. Don't worry <laughs> about it. And I love I, I I love the British peoples. I I have so much fun when I'm over there with those guys. It's great to be there. All right, so uh, MotoGP to wrap this all up. How about that? Yeah. So MotoGP, and this season was the first time I think that we came into the season and we really didn't know who was going to be world champion. The door was seemingly wide open because I think going into it, everyone kind of assumed with the, with David Bravido. Davide Brivido <laughs> leaving Suzuki that everyone kind of went, yep, well, that's the one title that Suzuki got this 20 years. We'll be waiting for another one. But the kid named Juan Mir did his best to defend his title. However, Fabio Quattraro was crowned king of the class. But Ducati showed that they are going to be the dominant bike and they are going to be the people to beat for the next few years, given the talent they have on the bikes and given how the bike has progressed underneath the tutelage of DG Dolina. Pekka Gabenyaya became of, came of age during this season and the grand old man himself closed it out his amazing career at what, 246 ground, or how, how many did he have? 240s? Almost 200 podiums, right? So he had 199 yeah. podiums and nine world titles and all that that went with it but mark marquez showed up to return earlier than we expected from his hideous arm injury that he had and he played a bit role in this season and he did so by winning races which we didn't think that he could do and he began to look like his old self thinking that potentially he could be somebody to look for in the coming year some people made mistakes this year. Some people guessed right. Soxen Ring was a shocker. I don't think anybody thought Marquez would win there, but you hoped that he would to keep his streak alive, and he did. The shock of Peko Benyaya falling a Mazzano with a lead a half of a, a true country mile on in there. And then Bender winning in Australia on the KT on the, in Austria, sorry, not Australia, in Austria on the KTM because he decided I'm not stopping to get on a different bike. I'm just going to truck on with these slicks. Interestingly, we had the success of Yamaha from a team that basically went from nowhere to being champions because of a guy named Quavio Quattraro. They did put the time in and they did build a motorcycle that was capable of winning. There was the lack of success from Honda, proving that Honda really probably only has a motorcycle that one guy can ride. His name is Mark Marquez. And if you don't think that's not true... Look at how different the 2022 Honda is. It is a completely different motorcycle from every way. I think maybe the wheels are probably the only thing that are the same. <laughs> maybe the brakes. And that's about it, right? I think everything else on that bike is completely different. The frame, the motor, everything is completely different. And thirdly, we had KTM literally going AWOL after a good start to the season completely disappeared. For a team that was on the come and looked like they were going to challenge for a world title, challenge, challenge. I mean, it looked mm. like going into it, you had to say at the beginning of the season that, well, the people who are going to be there for the championship are going to be Fabio Quattraro. But you were like, well, if the Yamaha is really good, Fabio can do it. You thought, okay, Juan Mir on the Suzuki, mm, he'll be there. He'll have some podiums. The Suzuki going to really give him another title? 
Maybe not, but the kid's special, so there's a possibility he could win it. And then you look down and you said, whoa, hey, wait a minute, there's Miguel Oliveira. Dude, he could be the favorite. He could have been or was at least in the conversation for being a world champion at the beginning of the year. The KTM looked good. He looked good on it. He had three race wins the prior year, and it just woof, went away. Nowhere to be found. And then last, lastly for the season is the disappointment that is Suzuki and their inability to have given Mir a motorcycle that was capable of being ridden at the front without having to override the machine to a point where even the smallest of mistakes left him farther back. Although, to Suzuki's credit, they did give him a shape-shifting bike, but it was a little bit... It was literally too little, too late for the championship. Yeah. So those are my thoughts on the MotoGP season. Yours, Rich? Uh, Again hard to argue with anything that you've said I, I guess you would have put probably jack miller in the mix as one of the pre-season favorites for the title as well i don't think anybody necessarily saw banyaya no i don't, I don't think way. anybody saw banyaya coming in the way that he did and i don't think anybody saw jorge martin coming on like he did True. and so that's there that's that point of it um so yeah there i mean that's the, you, we're talking about like martin we talked it with fernandez KTM probably has one of the best pipelines of taking talent from junior series into the world stage and then progressing them up the world stage to the very top. But it seems like they have a problem now, and that is retaining that talent. Because think about it. You are winning championships at a lower level. When you get to the top class, the top echelon, you should be able to win races and win a championship, of which KTM has not been able to do. But they have changed. You know, Leitner has now stepped down. So as a newsy thing, Leitner has stepped down. And um, Gito, uh, what's his name? G- oh, Francesco Guidotti. Guidotti is yeah. now team manager. Confirmed. So yeah. KTM dug into the pockets, dug into their pockets. I'm sure they just asked DD matches for a blank check. And he said, Oh, okay. Just fill it in later. And they went and poached a couple two of probably the best Italians going. Right. And yeah. that's, it's really interesting. I know people are going to hate this. It's kind of like Formula one esque. The teams are starting to poach people off of other teams. And <laughs> it doesn't that add intrigue, right? Cause we yeah. saw Honda poach Jenny Anderson. Is that why KTM couldn't do what they needed to do this year? Because Honda took arguably the one of the best suspension people don't know right because she took some magic i mean you know she did give that bike more feel on the front pole will tell you that yeah so i don't know where that plays into any of it but there's that to think about ktm is a we could probably spend the whole show talking just about ktm and suzuki as, as two sort of standouts for the wrong reason but they're often kind of the interesting ones to look at <laughs> yeah I mean, I think we've we've mentioned previously on the show, without straying too far away from reviewing, but was it a kind of a perfect storm of events that kind of conspired last season to bring Suzuki to the point where, you know, Mir was able, to, to his credit, I mean, mm-hmm. 
had a brilliant season, but he only won one race. That's it, just one. There was a lot of talk that he wasn't going to win any races and be world champion. That had been the first time that exactly. had ever happened in in history. And, and we've certainly said, slightly uncharitably, but but born out by history, that Suzuki have a habit of winning a championship and then disappearing from view for years and years, if not decades. Yes. So they're an interesting case in point. KTM, however, I was always a bit curious. I mean, they, they haven't solved the conundrum, which is Brad Binder's performance on a Saturday afternoon. We, we repeatedly say he's a, a great Sunday, Sunday man. man. Um, but starting so far back that, you know, they never really quite overcome that. I mean, he won in Bruno, I think, last season, as in 2020. Has he won any other races? I don't think he has. Austria, because he wrote, cause he wrote oh, on oh, the sorry. Sorry. Of, of course, okay. yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's all right. You, so, you can't be responsible for remembering every detail of every race. In both of those cases, there were slightly strange circumstances going on in in the race because I think Bruno was a wet race, if you recall, uh, when he yeah, when he it was also wet and yeah. came from a long way back again in that race. Mm-hmm. Oliveira, as you kind of quite rightly corrected me when I was sort of lambasting him in the last show, did have a very nasty injury at the Austrian round, and that certainly impacted literally his season running and i mean i'm a little bit curious given the degree to which ktm have invested and have risen you know up the moto gp ranks incredibly fast when you consider how inexperienced they are as a moto gp team i know they've got great pedigree in the lower classes and in other forms of motorcycle racing but moto gps are you know a major step up so to have got to where they have got to in, in the space of time that they've achieved it is is kind, kind of miraculous and it kind of surprises me a little bit that they haven't gone even deeper into those pockets to put a couple more bikes out on the grid because we were moaning the fact that Ducati have got so many bikes out there next year and KTM you feel would really would have benefited from having another two bikes out there which would also have served to solve this problem that they have of of where do they put all this talent that's queuing up because that is a big problem for them I always I understood I understood the reason why they did it but I always felt it was a mistake putting Petrucci on the bike this year See, I always felt that Rossi's VR46 team, despite what everybody said it was going to be a Ducati, was that it was going to, like, it would be the classic Rossi shocker. Hey, no, we're doing KTM. I really thought that was going to happen. Yeah, and it's a great shame that it didn't. Because, one, it would be great great noise for KTM. I get it. Rossi's Italian. I'm almost positive he went with an Italian bike because he could, right? Fine. But Rossi's a businessman, first and foremost. And obviously the bike isn't that good, but you got to think that KTM is going to be better. I mean, obviously Rossi made the right decision, right? We we, we will agree that the the, uh, the Ducati is actually the best bike on the grid because you have so many different riders riding on it. It's now become more of a Swiss Army type knife motorcycle than anything else that's there. But I just thought that Rossi was would pick something different and be different and be, you know, do what he was going to do and do left, with left field. Yeah. Yeah. And just come out of the back pocket where, hey, KTM's here and we, we put two more bikes on the grid that are KTM. So now there's six and you have his his talent where you could say those riders, you know, you even get the chance where you know Rossi would ride the bike a couple of times, right? So you, hey, Valentino, what do you think about this? Mm. It, it, it just felt like it was going to be one of those shocking things that Rossi does that nobody expects Rossi to do, but he does do. And then it works out brilliantly. Like it, it would just, and then it just didn't happen. 
And to to that point, why I don't know why KTM them I mean KTM themselves can't do it, but you think they would have went to like uh not Nakarsini, but um the I can't think of the I can't think of the team right now. Um and ask them to be a, a you know, be part of the factory. Because they treat KTM literally like a factory. Yeah. They they have the same equipment. So if you were because I think Grassini's not with Aprilia now, right? They've ixnayed that, and they went to Ducati. Yeah. Like, why didn't you, as KTM, your pit buyer, whoever, why not go to Grassini and say, look, man, we'll get you full factory motorcycles? Yeah. I'd take that deal, I think, instead of mm. having – I don't know what Grassini gets, but I'm pretty sure it isn't a 2022 Ducati. They could be 2020s. Maybe because I know yeah. Ducati's not. You know, I mean, I don't know. But somebody's yelling at their favorite podcast device right now. <laughs> <laughs> I always like to visualize that in my head. But it just didn't make any. It just doesn't make any sense. You know, KTM's obviously got a shit ton of money. All right, and they've got some good engineering. It just seems it just doesn't make sense that you're only putting four bikes on the track. I suppose the only thing that wouldn't have worked for them in terms of going down the VR46 route, or possibly even Grassini as an example, might be that it wouldn't necessarily be a, uh, an area where they could put some of their other riders, perhaps. Because, but, 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 but you still get the benefit of two extra bikes out. They're gathering a, you know, a shed load of data and and, and helping with the development path, or, or trying different things so that different you can ways, rule, some, yeah. rule some stuff out that you don't want to risk in the in the full factory team, for example. It so, just doesn't make doesn't make sense, but yeah, it's curious. they have a plan. We just don't know what it is. And it, who knows? I mean, they might come out of the gates absolutely charging next year. You just you just never know. It's so close. It doesn't take much to suddenly be back at the front again, I suppose. But I'm, I'm certainly hoping that Oliveira has a has a much better year, and one would hope that he'll have recovered from you know this this wrist injury that he picked up. And I mean, Binder remains a bit of a conundrum, really, doesn't he, in terms of what they can do to solve the saturday pace yeah. issue uh, he but, was good on the moto 2 qualifying it is he can't seem to get it going on a moto gp bike yeah we know. will see questions to be seen uh i think that pretty much covers the season teams don't you say rich yeah well i, I was hoping you were going to okay. ask what was the biggest shock of the season yes rich got, what was your I biggest got, shock of the season vinales getting booted out of yamaha really the, okay the he took that one of, okay the whole kind of disintegration rapidly of that relationship. Bear in mind, he won the first or second race in Qatar. So he had first a, race. I think it was the first, first race. race. So he had a, a strong start and then started getting thrown into some shade by his teammate, Quattararo, who was certainly able to do things on the Yamaha that most of the other Yamaha riders weren't able to do in terms of a, on a consistent basis anyway. Very, very true. And then, and then just the whole kind of total disintegration of the relationship i'm kind of curious and we'll never know but i'm kind of curious to know was it vinales and lynn jarvis was it vinales and his crew chief what or was it lots of people that he fell out with in the team but his head just completely went i think it's lynn jarvis yeah i know you have a sort of a I get like I get a thing against Lynn Jarvis, really. Yeah, to be honest with you, a little bit of a distaste going on there. Um, <laughs> it's come across before, but and he does appear to be quite a kind of um, what's what's the polite way of putting it? Uh, bit of a jerk. Well, I wasn't going to put it perhaps. Okay, quite you weren't that, not that hard. Okay, uh, uh, clear terms as that, but um, 
Yeah, uh, I can't think now. But yes, yeah, so sort of arrogance. Level, level hate kind of character, I suppose, mm, uh, in, yeah. in some respects. But th- those sort of funny faces that he pulls when the camera continually lingers on the pits during races, which is another of my pet irritations. But we'll leave that for another day. But um, but yeah, it was just. Well, uh, you know what? We have to have a show us how what we would do to fix MotoGP. Yeah. Right, yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that's definitely one that we want to do on the off season. We definitely need some listener feedback with some ideas on that. You know, yeah, what do people? What's, what's the top three things you'd like to change? Um, but yeah, Motopod at Motopodcast dot com. People, the top three things that you would change if you're running MotoGP. Send them and in. That can be technical regs, commercial things. It can be TV coverage. You, you know, anything. What don't they do that they should do? Yeah, open, open book on that one. But anyway. Obviously, the whole Vinales saga culminated in that utterly bizarre episode in Austria where there was the whole revving the engine out over the last few laps and trying to seemingly trying to blow the unit up. And, yeah, just being shown the door. Extraordinary. Absolutely extraordinary. I I agree with you wholeheartedly. That was my number one thing. Biggest shock was this whole Maverick Vinales thing going to a pretty mid-season Etc. But uh, I would give you, I will give you this one as well, because it was just different. Was the shock of both Benyaya and Miller crashing the Ducatis its second Mazzano, leaving one Mark Marquez to win on an on a clockwise circuit for the first time since having broken his arm. I think that was a bit of a shock because Marquez definitely was not going to beat Pecco or Jack on that day. But he, you know, you got to be there to win it. So I'll give that one as an honorable mention for big shock of the season because it, it that had championship ramifications in it too, right? There was there was a lot more going on there than just that. But uh, yep. Yep. I'll, I'll go with that as an honorable mention. Any any other shocks, surprises, things that you want us to have a little chat about? Uh, well, I suppose the one of the well, I'd say funny in retrospect. I mean, it could it could have been anything, but. but uh, and again, it was kind of early in the season, so you tend to forget these things. But there was the whole uh, leathers coming undone for Quattro. Oh, Zippergate. Zippergate. Yeah, um, that was a that was a pretty funny one. And how how he wasn't, you know, given the what they call the meatball flag, you know, the the black mm. flag with the orange ball yep. on it meatball, to say, yep. you know, you know, you need to pull over. There's a either your bike or something to do with you is is a danger to yourself or others. So that mm-hmm. was a little bit extraordinary. Um, I mean, MotoGP was just, again, consistently a brilliant season this year. They're, they weren't all classics because they never can be, but there was uh, some well, Austria really, was. really good really good races. And I mean, is it the best race of the year? Is it the shock of the year? Uh, yeah, I mean, Binder staying out on that slick tyre with the rain hammering down. and that, that, But that, that one was just like really crazy drama because you were wondering if it was going to come or not. And it started and... It's just you're guessing the whole way around of who was going to do what. But the thing that was amazing was that the guys that had went to wets were so much faster. Like those guys went flying back through the pack. You didn't know where to watch or what to do. And even Bender had a penalty for running off because he couldn't stay upright, and he still won with a yeah. penalty. It was. And you were you were talking at the last uh, on the last podcast about how visibly much quicker a Formula One car was looking around Qatar compared to a bike. Well, you had the same thing with wet tire versus slick tires on on a, on a damp track in Austria, didn't you? I mean, yes, you did. They they were just charging through, weren't they? And at one point, in like you were going to have Rossi on the podium, and within half a lap, you know, he was eighth or something, just completely wiped out by all the all the wet tires 
uh, runners. So yeah, that was a a, a real standout race. It, it it was one of them. Yeah, there was there was a lot of good races that were there, but uh, uh, who rode the best? So let's go with that one. I, I'm gonna again. I'm gonna go a little bit left field on this one, and I'm gonna put my hand up for Joanne Mir. Damn you, Rich. This. I was gonna was do that. that. I was okay. gonna go with one mirror because I think he rode his ass off. He did. I yeah. really think he rode his ass off on a bike that was not, by any stretch of the imagination, one of the best bikes in there. And you, what's sad is you could see when they got the shape shifting electronic gizmo wizardry on it that that he was fast. Like that's what he needed. Like you need that gizmo to give you that drive, that acceleration, now the turns. And all that stuff. So I, I I agree with you on that one. Um, anybody else stand out to you, ride what rider wise? Uh, golly, I mean, you, you could mention quite a few people, couldn't you? Uh, I mean, you can't you can't overlook Banyaya, who just came on stronger and stronger mm-hmm. and stronger as the season went on. Uh, and uh, I mean, Jorge Martin, you can't overlook him. I mean, right. given. His, his relative lack of experience to, to do the things that he was doing and right from the get-go as well i mean let's not forget Qatar. he was uh on the podium Paul, i think yeah Paul on podium and on the Paul podium on the podium yeah uh, right from the get-go yeah amazingly how fast that guy was on or is on a Primac ducati yeah i suppose you can and again i'm probably going to tread on toes in terms of what you wanted to go on to next but you can contrast some of those riders in terms of how brilliant they were with a few riders who unfortunately really over the course of the season, really underperformed and underdelivered. Yep. So, I mean, for, for honorable mention of who rode, not rode best, but more just having overcome adversity, Marquez winning two races. I, I yep. have to hand it to the guy. Everything that he's gone through, and now this concussion double vision thing, oh, yeah. who knows if he's even going to be back. I mean, this could be the end for him. And that's if that is the case that's sad yeah but we don't know he's beat it once before there's every possibility that he will beat this again there is surgery is still on the table as far as i know but they were going to reevaluate at christmas so we won't know anything um, probably until the first of the year as to whether he's going to have surgery or what's going to go on there but i have to give him an honorable mention because he won in Saxon Ring. It was tricky conditions. There was rain coming down on the visors. And he just said, nope, doesn't matter. I'm going to go faster than anybody else and did. Which shows that the guy still is brave. Very brave on a motorcycle. Uh, yeah. So I'll give it to that. But then, since you started this contrasting against people, who rode poorly? <laughs> or who rode the worst? Who under Actually, who underperformed? You're going to hate um, my answer to this one. Well, I know it's going to be uh, Alex Rins. <laughs> no, I wasn't going to go with Rins. Oh, okay, fair enough. Um, I mean, Alex Rins is is the one that I, one of the riders I had the highest hopes for going into the season, bearing in mind he was in the championship winning team. And he really underperformed and underdelivered consistently all through the year, really. And is quite, I mean, he's got a contract for next year, but I would suggest he's quite lucky to still be on the bike next year and needs to have a, needs to have a solid year next year jack miller so. i think you know he did win two two or three races jack miller but again it just kind of never really quite worked out did it so that's my pick is jack miller yeah because he had he did the he did the was it a double at her 
or he won at Hareth and then won the very next week. He didn't the do Mall. a double at Hareth. He won the but, Le Mans. Yeah, he won Hareth but he and won, the Mall. He yeah. won those. And I thought that Jack had kind of turned the corner and it just sort of went off again. I was like, what the heck happened here? Like he lost the plot. So I thought Miller underperformed more than anyone. Honorable mention for underperforming to Fabio Quattararo because I do think Fabio tended to and I don't blame him. He had a huge points lead, but he was definitely not able to ride at the level that Benyaya was pushing him to until Benyaya had you know made the mistake of Mazzano, and that was the breathing room that Quattararo really needed to kind of bring home the title because after because then after Coda Mazzano second Mazzano when did Quattro wrap up the title second Mazzano? Mm, yeah, because that's when Banya chucked it at the yeah. fence, wasn't it? Some, yeah. yeah, chucked it. So, I mean, not that Quattro wasn't going to win anyway, and Quattro is a talent, but if we're looking at the idea of... I, I'm not saying that you can't slide into a world title. You can. People do. People have. I can name... We can name any number of them. They're all far more talented than I'll ever be on a motorcycle. But the level where Quattro was to where Quattro finished causes me to at least put his name out there as a mention. Yeah. You know, he he was losing the plot because Benyaya was putting the pressure on him. And we talked about this in the show. You yeah. know, hey, is this pressure that Benyaya is applying to Quattro causing him to not ride? You know, or is it just I need to ride safe? I got to stay on two wheels. Is the have you admitted to defeat that Ducati is a better motorcycle? And no matter what you do, you can't do it. But if if Brad Bender is a Sunday man, Quattro was a Saturday guy. <laughs> Oh yeah, because he's a man to watch. His onboards and qualifying are things to behold. It is that bike's got the wiggles, the shakes, the moves. It's going every which way, but straight, and he just hangs on to it. It'd be interesting to see what happens. It's going to be interesting to see what Yamaha has next year as far as a motorcycle. But you got to believe that Quattraro is probably odds-on favorite right now. Ooh, I'm, Maybe. Uh, I'm not going with that. I, I, You're going to go with Benyaya? Oh, yeah, oh, without a doubt, in terms of next year. Yeah, yeah. for me, definitely. I, I, I couldn't help sensing a couple of things with, with Yamaha and Quattro, which was that I, I think by he just rode the wheels off that thing. And not luckily for him, because it's his talent that's doing it, not luck. But he has a special skill and talent, a bit like Marquez has, I suppose, to make the absolute be- or, or personally or certainly somebody like stoner certainly did back in the day mm, to get yes. the absolute maximum out of a set of soft tires when it counts to get on pole because when he was on pole he invariably win races he would be, certainly be on the podium or more often not win the race when he was down seventh eighth he was stuck yeah and i just couldn't help getting the feeling that he was both kind of exhausted by the level of effort at the end of the year and getting increasingly frustrated with the Yamaha in terms of lack of progress with the bike. And and I think that's why the sort of the, the, the PR filter slipped a bit at the at the Hareth test when he made his feelings perfectly clear that he was not very happy about the fact that there was nothing new on the bike for him to test. So why was he even there? Um, so I, I think the jury's out a little bit uh, on Yamaha. Morbidelli obviously injured his le- his knee, so he wasn't really able to contribute and switch teams from Petronas to, to the the main works team midway through the year, if you remember. And again, at the risk of hate mail, Rossi was seeing that the last year, knowing that that was that. 
So fair enough. He he just wanted to finish in a, in a degree of style and not hurt himself and head off into mm-hmm. retirement. Fair enough. But Rossi and, was but Rossi was still faster at Valencia than he'd ever been. Well, but it wasn't enough to be not, not at enough. the front. Yeah, which yeah. is incredible. But Rossi yeah. even said that it took that Valencia weekend was everything he had yeah. to be that fast, and it still wasn't enough. Which that that is why you you hang up the helmet and the leathers, yeah, and you quietly go into driving cars and racing cars and having a team and all that good stuff. And we, and we did acknowledge, didn't we, in the post Valencia race uh, show that we did that that was the fastest Rossi had ever ridden the Valencia race. But but yeah, unfortunately, other people were were, were quicker. So and then you know talking about gathering data in terms of your, your second or third teams if you're lucky enough to have them well Yamaha are facing difficulties next year on that front as well because whilst Davizioso might go moderately well I, I still think it's a bit of an odd decision to have somebody at the stage of his career uh, you, you know effectively leading the development uh, in the second team uh, with a teammate who's going to spend more time looking at the sky probably than looking down the track yeah. so, Davizioso does not crash He's no, going to no, spend more Binder. time looking at the... I'm talking oh. about Binder on the other bike. Oh, sorry. Gotcha. Darren, I missed that. Sorry. Yes, yeah, so, that one's going to be... He's going to be looking at the sky on that one. Yeah, well, yeah. I hope not. But, but or, or, you know, he's not going to necessarily be, you know, banging fairings at the very front. Uh, I don't think. I mean, we may be proven wrong on that one. But so I think Yamaha could find themselves in a, in a bit of trouble next year uh, under the onslaught of, of the Ducati Armada that's, that's coming their way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I definitely think that that's that's there you know the wild card in it all is if a semi-healthy mark marquez shows up on a halfway decent honda yes that's your wild card board but i think ben Yaya is probably there you know one thing we didn't mention aprilia a dry podium yep so they overperformed as far as the they're like the little team that could and they they had a good run of few races there, and then I think you see what happens to all small teams. There's not the development continuously coming to bring small bits, pieces, and other things that you need. And they really only have the the resources and facilities to do it as a one big lump change. But they, I, I, I said the bike was real from testing. I said they'd have a podium. They did get a podium. So honorable mention to Aprilia for yeah. being one of the best for for their team effort for the year. Despite his flaws that, that he displayed for everybody to see during the year, with Vinales on the bike, although he's saying that there's still lots of things that he needs on the Aprilia to suit his style, you, you know they've got a good team there. They do. In terms of the riding talent they got on that bike. And it has made great strides. And hopefully they'll make a step again next year, which they'll need to, because everybody else will make a step as well. So it's who makes the biggest step, I guess, is the, is the question. But yeah, I think um, I'm looking forward to seeing what Vinales can do next year. But, you know, with proper, well, I say proper testing. I mean, they don't really get to test, which is a shame. But um, yeah, nevertheless, I, th- I think uh, one would expect to see some further progress from Aprilia. Yes, I think so. Rich, I think that about does it. I think that's a pretty good wrap-up show of some differing views, opinions, and whatnot of what happened for the season. Yep. Anything else before we call this a show and put it in the can? No, we're already 
tipping the scales at uh, over an hour and a half again. Well, that's so. how we do it, right? Yep. <laughs> that's how um, it goes. Yep. Alrighty, <laughs> folks. Uh, like we said, uh, questions, comments. If you have three things you would change in MotoGP, write us in at uh, motopod at motopodcast.com. It goes to all the hosts. We're able to look at those. We'll take the best. We'll create something, create a show out of it for that, for what we would do to fix MotoGP, as Rich said. If you get just quite general questions, comments, things like that, please send them in there as well with that. You can always find me on Instagram and Twitter at MotoRGV. You can find Richard on Instagram and Twitter at Richard Jowett, J-O-W-I-T-T, for you people there. Give the man a follow. Give him some love. He needs it there. Anything else from you, Rich? No, I think we've uh, filled up the time again, so hopefully people will enjoy that. And uh, we'll be back to talk some more stuff in a, in a week or two's time, I guess. Yep. So uh, give us a week or two here, guys. We'll come up with uh, the next show. Not sure exactly when. Um, we'll tweet something out let you guys know what's going on. Until then, remember, if you're out and you're riding, to ride safe. Cheers. Cheers.